0: All right. Amen. Hey, Welcome to Compass. So glad that you have joined us on our last sermon in the series of prayer and evangelism. And we are, I trust and for a treat, as we open up God's Word. And you can go ahead, if you haven't already, open up your Bible to Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. And while you're flipping there, uh, I want you to contemplate or think about This. Ladies, don't you love it when your men are intentional? Don't you love it? And uh, it's Mother's Day, uh, and this is a great day for the husband of our moms to be real intentional. Like, I know for sure that right after this service, uh, men, I I know that you've already got uh, lunch plans already reserved right? I know that uh, after lunch the home is already clean. When, when she gets home, uh, the kids even have a sitter tonight, right? You, you already got all that planned, don't you guys? Don't, don't you? Okay, all right, but you do see the, the point of being intentional, right? Being intentional is so fundamental and imperative uh, for our lives, uh, even specifically just relationally, right? And you know that uh, using this illustration, using many of uh, illustrations or many real-life scenarios that you live in, uh, there is a difference in life when you live intentionally. There's a difference when you specifically set out each day with an agenda, with a purpose, and with expectations. Now, it doesn't end in relationships because intentionality is also crucial when we're talking about evangelism. Intentionality is of utmost importance when we're talking about the Gospels and its implications in our lives. I put it this way, that we must intentionally interact with every outsider. And what I mean by outsiders, we mean non-Christians. That's the content and the context that we see there in Colossians 4. We're talking about non-Christians. We must intentionally interact with every outsider by using our life, our time, and our speech to specifically... Win souls for Christ. I mean, that's why we exist on this side of our salvation, right? That is why Christ didn't zap you up or kill you off right after you got saved. Because He's got a purpose for you while you are here, and that purpose is for you to use your time. Right? to use your life and your way of life and to use your speech to win souls to Him. And that's why we exist here. And that's why we're here in this specific second and moment in time because God has a plan that He's prepared for us that we would be a part of His redemptive plan for history. That is, you and I have a part in what God is doing in this world to win people to Himself. Now, the problem arises when uh, well-meaning, even well-meaning Christians like us, uh, neglect the privilege of winning souls, when we neglect the privilege of winning souls simply because our life is not prepared, simply because our life is not equipped to interact with people intentionally, uh, that, my friends, is the biggest downfall of the Christian witness uh, in our church, Uh, that we aren't prepared and that we aren't intentional and proactive to interact with people specifically in hopes and prayers to win them to Christ. And this is why so many people in our culture today, uh, when they uh, hear about the church and they hear about Christianity and they hear about the gospel, uh, they can turn their noses up specifically because of this reason. You haven't taken it seriously. I mean, if you really believe what you believe, I mean, if you truly believe that there is a God out there who is holy and set apart and his justice is going to be poured out on an unholy world, you'd be telling people, wouldn't you? mean you would be telling people that if you believe that apart from Christ, we are going to spend eternity away from the, His presence and the glory of His might. I mean, if you truly believe those things were true, you'd be a lot more vocal about those things. Now, that is at least the response that you're going to get from non-Christians, which you see now that the, the imperative, the, what is crucial and what is paramount to our Christian faith is that we are telling people what we believe that we are telling people it is as important as anything you could ever imagine, the role and the responsibility that we have to intentionally interact with people when it comes to the gospel. And Paul, the apostle, as he's writing the church, to the church in Colossae, makes this abundantly clear throughout the letter, and he's driving it home towards the end of his letter here in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. When he says, walk in wisdom, if you're there, turn. To, if, you ha- if you aren't, turn there. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have plenty of Bibles here. If you raise your hand, we'll have an usher come get you a Bible. Uh, and we'd love to have you turn there with us as we study God's Word. Uh, Colossians 4, 5-6, uh, through 6, "...walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. There is, there is a, a proactive nature to our faith. Uh, Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person." Uh, to really understand this, you need to know where Paul was coming from just a couple of verses before this, because obviously these two verses are directed to the church or to us, to you and to I. Uh, there are two verses before this where Paul sets up the necessity for you and I to be intentional about the gospel. In verse 2, there in chapter 4, Paul says you need to be devoted to prayer. That is, you, your life needs to be consistently committed to the practice and the spiritual discipline of Prayer. And within that prayer, this is what it needs to look like, and this is what he says in verse 2 You need to be watchful or alert. Like you need to be paying attention in your prayer life of all the things that are going on in your life. Uh, So many of us uh, enter our life like we're riding a roller coaster and we just let whatever happens happen and we're hoping that it'll stop in 35 seconds. Um, But life doesn't work that way. Uh, Life works more like uh, we're running a marathon, uh, and if something's wrong, we need to work on it. We need to fix it. We can't hope that it's going to be over. We need to be praying to God that he would give us wisdom to know how to address the situation. And so Paul's saying here, you need to be alert and watchful in your life to be able to specifically pray about things that are going on in your life. But you don't need to do it just with alertness. You also need to wrap every prayer in your life around Thanksgiving. Again, that isn't tagging on Thanksgiving to God at the end of your prayer. It's that all of your prayer is wrapped in an attitude and disposition of thanksgiving to God. And that's just in verse 2. Verse 3 he talks about, I need you guys as a church to pray for me, as the Apostle Paul's saying, to pray for him for open doors for the gospel. And then finally, he says, I need you to pray for me that I can unveil or uncover the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember last week we talked about Paul had a a different job than we. It's apples and oranges, right? His orange is that he had to do something specific. Christ tasked him to uh, uncover the message of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, to a Gentile world. Because Gentiles didn't know Christ. The, the gospel was never given to the Gentiles until the road to Damascus. Christ comes down, uh, converts Paul and says, now you're going to be my uh, messenger and you're going to give the message to the Gentiles. So Paul needed a specific prayer to unveil the mystery of Christ to the church or to the Gentile community. Now, that's orange. Our apple is this. The good news is you and I don't have to uncover any gospel message because it's already unveiled. It's already clear, and it's already set forth in Scripture as complete and full and sufficient. And so our job here, our apple, is this, that we proclaim the gospel. Paul unveiled it, and now it's our job uh, as a Gentile church, for the most part in this room, uh, that we go and that we proclaim the gospel message. So that's where Paul uh, was sitting right before he jumped into this, right before he jumped into uh, the importance for you and I uh, to jump into his work, or to jump into what he's doing, and that we would make that a part of our regular life as the church here in New Braunfels, uh, just like we would if we were there in the church in Colossae. So I want you to look at verse five, as, as we have been sufficiently uh, introduced to the background of where we are. That we need to know that uh, with our prayer comes action. Right? With our prayer comes us living out that prayer in this way. In verse five, uh, Paul says that we need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. If you haven't, I know we've addressed this uh, multiple times in the letter uh, to the Colossians, but if you haven't, I want you to underline or circle that word walk in verse 5. I want you to, in your Bible or there on your note sheet, circle that word walk, uh, because that word walk is so important, but it's super ambiguous in in our culture. Uh, In the same way, if I ask you, hey, how's your Christian walk? How's it doing? Or, or if I tell you to leave here, go walk in Christ. What does that, what does that mean? It's ambiguous because it, it, there's, there's a vagueness there that it, it's difficult to know what it means unless you are specifically applying it and understanding it in regard to your Christian faith. And so I want you, though, to circle it and underline it because it is the imperative here. So the problem is it's vague and ambiguous if we're not paying attention, but yet it's so important. So that means for you, it's an eye, it's pivotal and paramount that we understand what the Bible means when it tells us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Well, that word in the Greek is the word peripeteo, uh, and in the New Testament, you're going to see that word translated a whole bunch of different ways. You're going to see it translated walk like we just saw it. Peripeteo is also translated live or to go about. Okay, so still some ambiguous stuff there. I want to turn you to a passage, though, that should zoom in on the specificity of what it means to peripeteo or to walk. So if you have your Bible open, I want you to flip to 1 Peter. 5, verse 8. First Peter, chapter 5, verse 8. As I was studying and looking through uh, some helpful content to help you understand, what does it mean by walk? What does it mean by peripeteo? Uh, I found this helpful, not that you should be walking in this way, but it gives you a word picture of what it truly looks like to walk your life faithful to God. Sounds counterintuitive when you read the text there in 1 Peter five eight. It says, "Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around." If you if you underline or highlight in your Bible, which you should, uh, you can circle that word "prowls." Okay, that word "prowls." You know what the Greek word for that is "peripeteo." Same Greek word, right? It is "peripeteo," and so what he's saying here, uh, "You're." adversary the devil prowls around this is his way of life this is how he lives he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour this is a good word picture because the translators from the Greek into the English did a really good job because what's important about the word is not that it's always translated walk it's trying to translate an idea and the idea is what does a lion do stalks and prowls and looks for food okay? That's the way of life for a lion. That's just what lions do, right? We don't get mad when, when lions go do what they do because we know that's what lions do. And so the word parapateo just means this, uh, you do what lions do and Christians do what Christians do, okay? So when I tell you uh, in the scripture, hey, walk in, the, in wisdom towards outsiders, what I'm saying is you need to walk like Christians walk when it comes to non-Christians. And that's what the word peripeteo means. Like we just got to do what Christians do, And I put it this way in point number one on your outline, is you need to live out your faith with intent, right? You need to live out your faith with intent. If you ever watch National Geographic, uh, if you ever watch BBC Earth, right, you ever watch those things and you just sit and you watch a lion as it's on the prowl uh, and you're kind of, you're kind of, pushing for the antelope to, to, to run away, but you're also kind of like, well, I hope the lion eats because he hasn't eaten in three weeks. At least that's what they've told you. And, you know, some, something's got to give here, okay? And so as you're watching this, you see with the great intent that the lion or the pride of lions goes after their prey. You just see it, right? It's intentional because that's what lions do. Now, in the same way, in our Christian faith, uh, we have to walk in wisdom towards outsiders because that's just what Christians do. Like We walk like Christians because that's what we are. There's nothing else that we can do. Now, I wish it were the case. There's a lot of things that people who profess Christianity do that isn't what Christians do, and that's the reason that we preach messages like this. Because as a Christian, you need to be walking like a Christian. And I know in a world full of... uh, independency, in autonomy, that we, don't, we want to be different, we don't want to be put into a, uh, we don't put into a mold, we don't want to be put into a, a frame of reference, but it is what it means to be a Christian, that there is some continuity between you and you and you and you and you and me because there is a framework in which we exist and live as Christians. And so we have to and we must live uh, like Christians live. And there is some resemblance to the community of Christ that we should all be reflecting, and there should be some sameness within that. And in that sameness, we are to live out our faith with intent, intentionally. It's not passive, right, which is a problem that we run into in our church culture and all over the world. It's not an American issue. It's a, it's a sin issue, and that's this, that many of us live in implied faith, right, that it's implied in the way that you live. Like, uh, you can always tell people, well, I'm a Christian, and they're going to say, well, how? Well, it's implied. Look, look at the way I live. Look at, uh, you know, I, I don't talk about it, but I'm a Christian. I go to church. I go to life group. Uh, I read my Bible. It's an implied faith, uh, but the Bible doesn't talk about implied faith. It talks about applied faith, right? We've got to make sure that in our faith that it's applied, that, that it is actually evident in the way that we live our life and actually evident in the things that we say and the actions that we make. And that is what Paul has been getting at in the whole letter to the Colossians because he says it in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Our words and our deeds, that means our whole walk of life, ought to look like a Christian's walk in life. And it's only going to do that if we have an applied faith and not an implied faith. An implied faith is what leads to an unhealthy church with an unhealthy healthy gospel witness in the community. So we want to make sure here at Compass and, and anywhere that's preaching the Bible that we live with an applied faith. And there are two ways in verse 5 uh, that helps us understand how to live intentionally with an applied faith. So I want you to look there back at verse 5. It's telling us that we need to walk in faith. Right? We need to walk our faith out. We need to live it out. We need to be intentionally uh, and the one way we do that is with wisdom, okay? You can put that as subpoint number one, that you need to walk in wisdom. If you're taking notes, write that down, under point number one, walk in wisdom. Now again, uh, for the sake of you not just generally applying wisdom to any situation and every situation that you've ever found yourself in, I want you to pinpoint in Scripture what it's talking about. In what context is wisdom to be applied in this verse? It is in one way. Specifically, you need to live in wisdom toward non-Christians. Toward non-Christians. And I don't want that to leave you. I don't want you to leave here saying, well, I just need to be better at being wise in in area A, area B, area C. Those are true statements. Very true. You need to learn how to be wise in all the walks and areas of life. But specifically, in this text, we're talking about a specific area. And that is when it comes to your life around non-Christians. But before we get to that, we need to understand, what is wisdom? If I ask you, could you tell me what wisdom is, could you define it? If I ask five of you uh, what the word wisdom means, I'd probably get five different answers. And so we can suffice it this way, just in a small three-word definition, is that wisdom is godly knowledge applied. All wisdom is, uh, from a biblical context, simply, is godly knowledge applied. There's a lot of people in this church, a lot of people in the churches around the world, and we've all guilty of this at times, uh, of being smart, unwise people. And there's a lot of people who know a lot of things about God, know a lot of things about the Bible, who are the most unwise people you've ever met. Uh, but there's a difference uh, in being smart and in being intelligent and in being wise. To be wise means we have the knowledge of God and then we walk it out. We parapeteo it in our whole life. And so we must know that we have got to walk out the knowledge of God towards non-Christians. Did you see that, what I did there? There's an explicit nature to your faith that has to be displayed to the world, right? We can't walk with a, with a blanket over the lamp. We can't hide, the, our, we can't hide our light under a lampstand, right? We are, by nature, people of light, and we must live as people of light. And if we're people of light, then it means we're displaying that publicly, explicitly, and intentionally. Paul prays for this. Uh, and I just want you to see how uh, continuous or the, the continuity in Paul's thoughts throughout the whole letter of Colossians. Because in the very beginning, in chapter 1, Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Paul's praying for the Colossians. And he's praying for them as he opens up this letter and he's like, this is what I'm praying for. I'm praying for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's that's the verse. He's praying for the knowledge of his will, that you would have it. And he's praying for them that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is the prayer. And I hope you pray that on a regular basis, that God would give you knowledge, uh, that he would fill you with the wisdom and understanding. But we're not done. Because so many of us, we do want wisdom and we do want understanding, but so often we want it on our own terms to use it on our own things. Right? We want wisdom uh, to make good decisions for, for me, myself, and I, and not for the reason that Paul addresses here. Right? Paul says that he wants us to have wisdom for a whole other reason, and this is what he says in verse 10. I want you to have the knowledge of God's will. I want you to have spiritual wisdom and understanding for this reason. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. God's or Paul's desire is, there it is, that word in verse 10, peripateo. He wants you to live out your life in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you would live in such a way that would please God, not please yourself, but to please God, uh, and that you would bear fruit in every good work. That means you would produce something with the wisdom of God that he's given you as you're living out your faith. It would produce fruit for the kingdom of God through your gospel Witness through your evangelistic witness. Remember that word evangelion, which just means good news, which just means you're sharing the good news about Jesus Christ? That's what the gospel is. And that your life would be fruitful in producing some return on the gospel witness that you were supposed to provide intentionally as believers and that you would increase in the knowledge of God as you do that, which is often how it happens. As we're being faithful, we continue increasing in the knowledge of God. And that may be your case that you said, I haven't increased in the knowledge of God in a very, very long time. And I would ask the, uh, the question that is attached to that, well, are you being faithful to God in a very long time? Because those two things are often attached together as they are there in Verse 10. But what we need to see is this wisdom is directed towards a group of people. It's directed towards non-Christians. And that is you need to look for opportunities to allow your Christian maturity to influence public arenas. You need to be able to allow your life, your faith, to influence for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, public arenas. I look in this room, and for those of you that I know, I know many of you pretty well, and I'll look at some areas that you find yourself in whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's in certain communities and neighborhoods. uh, There's a lot of places you live and you exist in that I'll never find myself in. Okay, So we can't just depend on uh, the pastor in the pulpit to be the person with the gospel witness that's declaring it to everyone. When it comes to living intentionally, God has placed you, according to the, the book of Acts, in a specific time in history, in a specific geographical area, for you to do something for Him, and He wants to produce in you fruitful ministry for gospel advancement. And so what we've got to understand is we have areas of influence everywhere, and we have to make sure that we are intentionally using those moments and using those opportunities to influence people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how can I do that? Well, your 2nd subpoint. Is the first one is you need to walk in wisdom. The second one is you need to be making the best use of time. Write that one down. You need to be making the best use of time. And that's what the rest of verse 5 says uh, there. Uh, and if you're not careful, which is why I do think a little bit of working knowledge of Greek is going to help you, uh, because the, the word uh, doesn't just mean that you just need to make the best of all the time that you have, or if it's a bad day, you might as well use it for the Lord, because it's already bad anyway. I mean, it's, it's, it's a much more deep meaning than that. Uh, in the Greek dictionary, right, when you see the word translated making the best use of your time, you get a word uh, that's two words, right? It is eggs, agorazo it's in one word but it's actually two Greek words ex agorazo okay and if you separate those two words first one you get the word ek were you here on Easter ek means what out of, right? You remember that? I'll ask you next week. You'll remember then. Okay, ech means out of or out, and so you get ex agorazo, and you get agorazo, which means to redeem. Okay, so that compound Greek word means that we must do something, and it's not just making the best use of time; it's redeeming the time. It's to buy this time that we have, every opportunity, every day, to use it for the gospel. Then you see the again the intentional explicit nature of our role here when it comes to gospel advancement is not implied. That is, I can't just purchase time if I'm not making a transaction, right? That means I can't just live my life, wake up in the morning, kind of zombie move through the day until I go to bed that night and redeem the time. I can't do it. It's a transaction. It's a moment-by-moment purchase, buy, take, use it for gospel advancement, and it's intentional, and I've got to do it, and it takes work, and it takes time, and it takes uh, understanding, and that's what I have to do, right? I have to buy up the opportunities, right? And And it's... It is opposed to this idea, right? Opposed to this idea that I'm just gonna live my life and when the opportunity comes, then then maybe, you know, if if God really impresses it upon my heart, I'll go tell that person about Jesus. Right? And that's how so many of us walk. They say, you know, somebody's like, Hey, could I could I learn about the gospel? And so if you were in this situation, I hope you would answer clearly yes, but you're like, well, they haven't asked the right question yet. Let me wait until they really, really tell me they want to repent and trust, and then I'll tell them. They say, well, I want to know, where do you go to church? Well, that's not really important. I mean, in our lives, we want God to make it super, 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 super obvious before we even begin a gospel conversation. And the Bible is saying, no, 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 you need to go purchase the opportunities. You need to go buy it up and then use it for gospel advancement. So there's a, a big difference here in the passivity that we often engage in gospel conversations and the activity and the ex- explicit nature of how God calls us to purchase the opportunity, buy it up, and use it for Christ. And we need to buy it up and we need to claim it for Christ. I mean, that's, that's really the job of our lives with the time that we have left here on this earth, that we're going to buy up every opportunity for the cause of Christ. There's a stewardship principle in this, this, to redeem, to take something, and to make something out of it. I mean, there's a stewardship principle, and it's a word that we use a lot here at Compass, to steward. Like, God has given you privileges. God has given you responsibilities, uh, and they come in terms of your family and your finances, your job, your own life, right? And, and you could say your health, sure, but even your sickness is a stewardship and a responsibility for God because when you're sick and you go to these specialist doctors that have never heard the gospel before and you're, you're dying of cancer and you, and you walk into a room and they, they, get the, they, they get to hear the gospel. One of my closest friends was here this last week. He was filming a whole bunch of stuff here. He's got stage four cancer, Right? And, every, and every few weeks, he posts a video on Facebook just saying how faithful God is in, in the process and how grateful he is for God and the gospel and how grateful he is for his church family. Uh, and it's never, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't, this is terrible, I wish this would end. It's, hey, I'm going to be a faithful witness in the midst of whatever I'm going through. Right? And again, it's when we think, many people think as Christians, well, I'm going to share the gospel when things are good. But when things are bad, everyone understands. I, I don't need to be about that because I'm, I'm, I've got to focus on getting these things right. Instead of saying, you know what? God's put me in every situation in life to make sure that I can put the gospel on loud. That I can turn up the volume on the message of the gospel because it's truly when you're suffering, people will start listening to what you have to say. And people don't really want to know what you have to say about the gospel when life is perfect. And so what I'm saying is it doesn't matter what situation you're in. You need to buy it up. You need to redeem it. You need to ransom your time. Just like Christ ransomed us and purchased us out of an evil world, we need to purchase and ransom the time out of an evil and corrupt world and use it for the advancement of the gospel. And there's that stewardship principle that you find in Matthew 25. You can jot it down. You don't have to flip to it. Matthew 25, uh, verses 14 through 30, verses 14 through 30, and you know this, I mean, you, you know this parable, is a parable uh, of, the, of the talents, and you had three people. You had three servants and one master, and the master was leaving for a while, uh, and he pulled his three servants aside, and he said uh, to you, to the first one, I'm going to give you five talents. If you don't know how much a talent is, one talent is 20 years' wages, okay? 20 years' wages. So to the first servant, he gives him 100 years' worth of wages, now, if you don't think that's a lot, uh, do you have a hundred years worth of what you make every year? A hundred years. Imagine the stewardship that he gave to this first servant. I'm going to give you a hundred years worth of savings, and I want you to go invest it. I want you to go use it and steward it for the advancement of my cause. He goes to the second, uh, the second servant, when he gives him two. And before you start complaining about injustice, I mean, he got forty years. <laughs> of savings. He got 40 years worth of life savings given to him to steward for the advancement of the cause of the master and for him to invest and to capitalize on. And then you get the last guy uh, and how many does he give that servant? One. Gives him one. 20 years savings. He gives him 20 years worth of wages to invest for the kingdom cause of the master. He comes back after years and years and after a time. And he goes back to the first servant and uh, he says, "Okay, what did you do with the, the, the hundred years worth of investment that I gave you? And he says, listen, I've made you a hundred years richer. I've given you, I've given you return to all that, a hundred percent. And the master is very pleased and very grateful for all that, uh, all that this servant had done to steward his investment because he didn't give him pennies. I mean, he gave him a lot, of, a lot of investment here. And he goes to the second one who was given 40 years Uh, wages. And he says, okay, what did you do with what I'd given you? And he came back and gave him 40 more years uh, of wages. Uh, And he's very pleased with him. And he says, welcome. I'm so faithful servant. So grateful. I'm going to make you uh, a leader and and, and make you over this area, this particular uh, area of my estate. I'm going to give to you to look over. And then he goes to the last servant who still had 20 years salary. What if I told you right now, hey, I'm going to give you the opportunity to invest 20 years of your salary. Would you would you be would you be for that? Right. This isn't a low sum of money here. This is a great privilege and responsibility that he was given. Uh, and you know what he does. He goes and digs the hole, (laughs) puts the 20 years worth, I don't know how you fit 20 years worth of savings in a hole, but it must, I think he worked harder to dig the hole than he would have if he would have just invested the money. Uh, He he digs it up, buries it, uh, he buries it, covers it up, his master comes, and he says, hey, what did you do with the 20 years savings that I gave you? And he says, here, here it is, over here, look, here it is, you're going to uncover it, just like you gave it to me, not a single thing's missing. And then the master says, well, not a single thing was added. Right? I gave you a stewardship and a responsibility, and you just gave me back what I, what I give you. Uh, and the principle here, and the stewardship principle, is that, that God has given us many responsibilities, many stewardships uh, for His glory. As a matter of fact, uh, in Philippians 2, uh, 14 through 16, uh, it says that you are need to live as lights of the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I mean, there's your theme of those two verses. I mean, the world is twisted and it's crooked. I don't have to turn on, you don't have to turn on the news to know that. You don't have to look at a newspaper to know the world is crooked and twisted. And God has asked us to do all things without grumbling, verse 14, that we would be blameless and innocent in this twisted, crooked generation. And he says this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, live in explicit, intentional, outward faith as lights in the world. And here's and here's a a win for this, right? For those who stewarded well, right? For those who are the first two and not the last servant. Verse 16: I'm holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Okay. The goal here is when we live in applied explicit faith that we shine as lights in the world we're holding fast to the word of Christ the gospel and the good news of the grace of God so that in the day of Christ that means when Christ comes and gathers his church right i may be proud that i did not run in vain or labor in vain right the goal and i shouldn't even say the goal i mean the the expectation for the christian is that i live my life as the first two servants and the last one is a warning to say if you're a christian you are still given such a stewardship and responsibility, even if it's only a talent. And I say if it's only a talent, that's still so much. And that's what I want you to understand. Whatever God has given you is so much. I mean, your salvation alone is worth the life and the price of Christ. And He's given you such a privilege and a responsibility to go do great things for the cause of Christ. And it's a warning to say, don't be this person who took the gift and the grace of God and buried it in a hole until Christ comes back. Because the good news for those of us who did invest, who did make the best use of our time, who lived out our faith with intent, is that we're going to be, on the day of Christ, proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We're not talking about the kind of pride that's boastful and it's self-exalting. We're saying, whew! You're right. There you are. I I trusted in you. You told me you were coming back, and here you are, and you're going to be proud of it. I mean, you're going to be proud that there's a lot of things I could have invested my time on. There's a lot of things I could have invested my money in and my life in, and I just took you at your word, and here you are. And there's other people who are going to be like, I should have listened to that pastor guy when he told me that Jesus would come, and here he is, and I have done nothing, right? I mean, it's, it's right here, straight from the Scripture, that we need to be stewards of what God has given us, and the greatest thing that God has ever given us is the gospel of Christ, given us His Son. And so the, your main stewardship as a Christian is that you would go propagate and spread and fertilize the gospel in your workplaces, in your homes, at the doctor's office, in your classrooms, at the park, you gotta, that's our responsibility, to be the faithful servants. We've talked a lot about living, we've talked a lot about my faith intently, intentionally lived, lived out, but you're not going to talk about living out your faith without addressing one, one thing really, really important, and that is the manner of your speech. The way that you talk, the way that you interact with people verbally is of utmost importance to God when it comes to your life. And we see it in verse 6. Go ahead and look down at verse 6 of Colossians chapter 4. Verse 6, it's talking about your speech. You need to let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. You'd be surprised, and as I was, uh, when you look at Scripture and uh, separate exactly how much content and how much space in the Bible is set apart for your speech. How much of it is set apart to help us understand how we ought to speak and how we ought not to speak? I mean, it is amazing to me how much time God has spent curating in his words to us the way that we speak, the way that we talk, the way we interact with people. Uh, One that I want to give you, you can flip there quickly, is James 3, 8 through 10. Uh, I want to flip you to James 3, 8 through 10, because I think it is the very reason why God has spent so much time in his word telling us how we ought to speak and how we ought not to speak. Because there's a problem, and if we don't address this problem, we're not going to understand the significance of our speech. James 3. Verses 8 through 10, it says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Okay, there's your problem. Okay, There's why God says, I'm going to spend enough time in my word to my people because here's the problem that we're all run into is you have an untamable tongue. It's restless, it's evil, and it's full of deadly poison. And you spend almost no time in your life taming that thing. Right, if I told you there was a there was a a king cobra about 15 feet long and it's uh, it's in your living room, okay? And I said, listen, it's untamable, okay? It's poisonous and it's restless and it's evil, right? You would be spending every bit of time you have from that moment until you capture that thing to concoct a plan to get that thing out of your house, wouldn't you? I mean, you would spend so much time saying, I don't want my kids around it. I don't want to be around it. I will burn that house down before I let my family in that room with that very poisonous, deadly snake. I mean, you would give so much intention to the way that you handle that thing that it would take up all of your time until you dealt with the problem. But yeah, when it comes to the way you speak, even though Scripture... Compares it exactly to a 15 foot long deadly snake that will kill you and is very dangerous and poisonous, you spend no time addressing it, or very little, even if you were devoted to doing it. And we've got to make sure that we're addressing the way that we speak because we do have an evil, deadly, restless, poisonous tongue that can't be tamed. And the problem in verse 9 uh, is just exasperated when we see that we bless our Lord and Father with it. That's a problem. Okay, this very deadly evil thing that is just poisonous, we bless our Father, our Lord and Father with it. And with that same tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Uh, And that's likened to people coming here, right? You sing really great intentional worship songs that talk about the truths and the character of God and the truths about God and His church and His people, and then you listen to the word being preached, and you write down notes, uh, and you're, you're saying all these words, and you're repeating all these words, and you're intaking all these words that are godly and good, and Uh, You even give people some nice pleasantries as you walk out. God bless you. God bless you. Good to see you. Okay, get out of my way. Good to see you. And then you get in your car, and the first person that pulls out in front of you and cuts you off, you say words you would have never said in church. Immediately, as soon as you walk out. Okay, then you go home and you're in conflict with your spouse and you say words that should never be repeated and should have never even been said, right? The way that you talk and think about uh, when when you're mad and you're angry at your kiddos, right? The way you talk about that person on Facebook who said some things and created a conflict on social media and now, uh, you know, you just have all this conflict in your life. I mean, what about those times? How are you speaking in those times? You say, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because it's a gospel problem. You say, well, how so? Well, because the Bible says in verse 10, from the same mouth we bless and we curse, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Out of the fountain that proclaims the gospel should not pour forth a fountain of poison and a fountain of destruction. From the same mouth where you proclaim the good news of Christ shouldn't be the same mouth where you proclaim deceitful, poisonous things that come from our sin. And, And here's why. Our speech matters because it is with our speech that the gospel is articulated to the world, right? And the problem with that becomes when I'm trying to preach the gospel out of this side of my mouth and I'm preaching poison out of this side of the mouth, people don't know can make one ends from the other when it comes to the way those two things are connected, right? Well, they tell me one thing, but they live a different way. Well, they said this, but they also said this. What do I believe? That is the problem. Your stewardship is a speaking stewardship. It's a spoken stewardship. So you have to make sure that the way that you speak matters. The way that you speak matters because even doctrinally, theologically, did that get your attention? Or did it make you fall asleep? Theologically, right? Doctrinally, we understand something about the preached message or the gospel. It is a spoken gospel. Doctrinally, we have to understand something about the gospel. It is a preached gospel. Uh, In the Greek... We get the word "preach" from the word "caruso," proclaimed that it is a spoken. It's a proclaimed gospel. Uh, if you count the New Testament and the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint or the LXX, you've heard it all three ways, I'm sure. Uh, this word "caruso" is said around eighty-seven times. Around eighty-seven times uh, in the Bible, we get the word "caruso," meaning to proclaim, to announce, and to speak. And out of that 87 times, 61 of them are in the New Testament, and almost every single one of them are attached to one noun, the gospel. 61 times we look in the New Testament, and it's talking about proclaiming, and it's always talking about the gospel. You proclaim the good news. We're announcing the good news. I'm saying the good news. I'm preaching the good news. Over and over again in the New Testament, we, t- we understand that the gospel is a spoken message. So, we understand why the Bible is really intentional about how it teaches us to speak and how it teaches us to talk because the gospel is a spoken message. One instance, Mark 16, 15, you can jot that down. Mark 16, 15. And Jesus says to his disciples, Go into all the world and caruso the gospel to the whole creation. I mean, it is Christ's command to us in the Great Commission that we find there in Mark 16. You need to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, caruso the gospel. Right? Your words are important because it is the conduit in which the gospel is proclaimed to a lost world. And so we have to be intentional, and we have to be uh, specific in the, w- in the words that come out of our mouth. We're not just going to say words, or we're not just going to narrow down our words by the things that Scripture doesn't say, I can't say that, so I will. We can't live life that way. We, we have to live life saying, you know what, I'm not just going to be okay with doing things the Bible says isn't bad. I'm going to do the things the Bible said is good. I'm going to do the things the Bible tells me explicitly to do. So many times in our Christian faith, we go as far to say, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't, so I will. And so we're asking the wrong question. The right question is, what does the Bible tell me to do? Then I'm going to go do those things. Right? We spend so much more of our time in the will of God when we find ourselves doing the things that God says instead of just saying it must be okay because the Bible doesn't say I can't. Right? It's the wrong question. We need to ask the right questions because our words matter. The way we speak matters. The conversations that we have matters. And we're going to proclaim, Caruso, preach. There's a really bad quote uh, that has floated around for a very long time. Uh, Pastor Evan on my, our podcast for the Life Group leaders yesterday told me who it was attributed to. Uh, and I'm not smart enough to know. He knew exactly what I was talking about, what he was talking about, and I didn't, I couldn't follow him. But the quote uh, is this, always share the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Okay, that is the worst quote that I have ever heard in my life. As a matter of fact, I remember the first time I ever saw the quote, and I was in high school, and I wasn't trained theologically, but I walk into a gym, and I see it, uh, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. I'm 15, 16 years old, and I'm like, that can't be right. Because I knew enough about the gospel to know it's a preached message. It's a spoken message. Right? Uh, that, is a, that quote is a lousy uh, excuse for why Christians don't need to talk about the gospel because I'll just let my life reflect it. Great. Your life should reflect the gospel. You should be lights to the world. You should be salt of the earth. Uh, but that salt and that light comes explicit when I'm explicitly sharing the gospel. And so we've got to make sure that we're doing this, and it's point number two, it's speak to win souls to Christ. You need to speak to win souls to Christ. And I know for you, when when you're looking at this, you're going to think, well, it's easy for you, pastor, you do this every day. I mean, your job all week, every single day is to talk about the gospel, talk about the gospel, talk about the gospel. And again, that's the wrong statement. Because the the statement needs to go, well, how in the world, in every situation you find yourself in, can you redeem your conversation, redeem your job, redeem your situation, redeem your doctor's appointment so you can share the gospel? You see, we don't just share the gospel because it comes naturally or it's easy because I'm in church with a whole bunch of people who voted to be here. I mean, you guys all volitionally got up, came over here. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Uh, but I have to live my life outside of this church often too, uh, and I have to do the same thing. Redeem the opportunity for gospel conversations. And for you, it is saying, well, you may live in a a job or in a home that doesn't want to share the gospel. Great, redeem the time and do it anyway. Redeem the time, buy it up, purchase it, and give it to Christ. We need to speak to win souls to Christ. Something simply we can ask ourselves is, does my speech adorn the gospel, or does it hinder the advancement of the gospel? Does the way that you speak, does it adorn it? Right? Does it make it attractive? Does it make it pleasant? Does it make it approachable? Or by the way that you speak, does it hinder the advancement of the gospel? Does it diminish your gospel witness? I mean, those are things that we've got to nail down if we're gonna walk out these doors and be fruitful for the gospel and be good stewards of what we have been provided in Christ to go provide to the world. I mean, we're gonna have to make sure that we don't hinder the gospel, that we adorn the gospel in the way that we live and the way that we speak. And in that way, yes, right? Your words aren't necessary always to adorn the gospel, but it is necessary to preach the gospel. It is necessary to share the gospel, and it is necessary to draw people to the gospel to respond appropriately to it. And that was your point number two. You have 3 subpoints. 3 subpoints. I want you to write under this uh, when it comes to the ways that this verse tells us how to use our speech to win souls. Because that's the goal here, right? Just not, it's not to make you a better speaker on stage. It's not to make you a better communicator in speech class. It's not to make you a more winsome, attractive person who can attract other people. Uh, we want you uh, to have a speech that wins souls. And so your 1st subpoint is this, that if you want to speak to win souls, you need to speak with grace, right? You need to speak with grace. That's what it says there. In verse 6, it says, Let your speech, speech always be gracious. And before we kind of get away with saying, Well, I'm a gracious person. I, I tip, you know, when we eat lunch. I hold the door open for people. I tip my hat, you know, when people walk by. Uh, we understand there's, there's two ways to look at the word grace. Uh, and Paul wants us to blend the two okay? The one is what we call human graciousness, which is all those things, right? I mean, you won't go to any society, well, definitely any place around here, uh, any place in America, where they tell you being a good person is a bad thing. As a matter of fact, you should be a good person. You need to be a gracious person, and you need to do good things, and you need to be a benefit to society. Human graciousness, that's that's what it means, right? You're going to do good things because that's what you need to do, okay? Okay. But there's also the difference in Paul's talking here with his word charis, right? That you have a divine grace attached to it, right? You have the human graciousness, but you also have divine grace, okay? An efficacious grace, a a grace that gets people to where God wants them to be in relation to Him. And with that, we're saying your speech needs to be full of grace. And that is not, I'm speaking to you nicely, which is part of it, but it is, I'm going to speak to you in a way that brings you face to face with the mercy and grace of God. It is the charis, the grace, the divine grace that says, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need to respond to it. That's the divine grace that Paul is saying that when we speak, we must speak in that way. When we speak to people, it must bring them into the presence, at least into the reality that there is a God. There is a God who uh, requires a response from you. There is a God who has given his life for you, and Desires a relationship with you, right? When I speak, I need to be speaking graciously, with human graciousness and divine grace. Not that I can speak in divinity, not that I can speak uh, prophetically, but what I can do is take the words in Scripture, understand them, know them, and enter into a gracious relationship. With somebody, a gracious conversation with somebody where they are face-to-face with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means when you need to make sure that you, to, if you're going to speak to win souls, you need to speak with grace. Human graciousness and divine grace. The kind of efficacious grace that brings people into a relationship with God. Okay, And so what I'm saying is being good isn't good enough. Being nice isn't nice enough. You can be nice and never win a soul to Christ. And I, I mean that from the other end too, right? You can give all the divine grace you want and look at people and put your finger in their chest and tell them they need to come to Christ. And there are people in stripes of theology that will applaud you because you didn't mince words. You just told them how it was. Uh, okay, also wrong, right? Human graciousness, right? You need to be gracious in a human way when you're approaching people, when you're conversating with people. It's both. It's not this or this. It's both. And they're both necessary. Secondly, your second sub-point is your speech needs to be seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. Uh, this phrase becomes interesting uh, because if I were to tell you to come tell me, hey, define to me what it means to be seasoned with salt, you would do, you'd probably do this like me. Uh, you'd say, it means, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I thought I knew what it means. I use it all the time, but I, 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 I don't. That is the problem that we run into here, right? Uh, what does it mean to be seasoned with salt? We understand that in, uh, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, salt was used as a purification element. Uh, salt, even today, is used as a preservative. That's the reason when you eat certain things that are canned, they tell you don't do it because it has a very high uh, sodium chloride uh, percentage and it's not good for you. Uh, yeah, we, we understand that s- sodium or salt is a preservative, But salt also does something that you love, right? It flavors things, right? It flavors your food. Anybody eat salt on their watermelon? Me, I do. Why? Because it gives it a better taste. It tastes better. Watermelon's great. With salt on, it's even better, okay? Uh, That is where Paul uh, seems to be pointing and seems to have this understanding in view as he's talking about making sure that your speech is seasoned with salt. It is that you make the gospel tasteful and attractive, that the way that you speak draws people to the gospel. It doesn't repel them away from the gospel. And so for us, it's to be, have gracious speech, human graciousness mixed with divine graciousness. Season was salt, that we can make the gospel attractive. And if you're one of those people that say, I don't know. I don't know how to make the gospel attractive. I would say, you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ if you can't make the gospel attractive. right? And I know in churches like this, we always tell you, there's bad news. Okay, there's real bad news. right? God is holy, and His justice is going to pour out on the whole world. He's going to exact His justice perfectly, uh, and all the sin is going to be atoned for, and there's bad news, and there's all these things, and God's wrath is going to be poured out. We know those things to be true. But if you can't make the gospel attractive, you don't understand some basic elements of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is, God saved me from sin. I mean, imagine that. like All the terrible things that you were and and still are in in so many ways, God had redeemed you. There was nothing that made you bad enough that God wouldn't come rescue you and take you in. You want to hear some attractiveness? You can't be so ugly that God wouldn't come and redeem you and make you his. You want to hear anything more attractive than the fact that it doesn't matter how bad you are, God will still come save you? Look at this. God not only called me and saved me from sin and called me to himself, he promised me a place with him. He didn't just save me and say, go figure it out. I just spit everywhere right there. It's good. He didn't just kick me out. And say, "Go find your way." I did. I did my job. Go do yours. No, he says, "I am going to give you a place." And that's what Jesus said. Where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That when I come, I will take you with me. I got a place for you. I'm going to save you, and you're moving in with me. We're live. We're going to be. We're going to be together forever. Okay. And then he, he keeps going, and he says, "But hey, I know I'm leaving, but it's better for me that I leave because I'm going to send you a. Say it louder." helper, right? There we go. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you something. I'm not just leaving you. I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you my spirit. I'm going to place my spirit in you. And as as long as you're alive, I'm with you. I'm going there. I'm preparing a place, but I'm also here with you all at the same time. Okay? And then he, he keeps on by saying, and I'm not only going to go prepare a place for you and be with you, I'm going to give you a community of people. I mean, look at this right here. Right now, all these people in this room are people, or not all of you, but most of us, the expression of the local church are people who've turned from their sins, trusted in Christ. Uh, you would have your spirit in, God's spirit in you. God is preparing a place for you. Uh, and you're in here as the expression of the local church because God saved you and he's given us one another. You wouldn't hear a more attractive gospel than God's protected us, saved us from himself, and given us a whole bunch of people? Go to anyone in this community and ask them, uh, hey, do you have, I don't know, 300, 400 people that you could call anytime if you needed anything? They would say, no, no, I don't have that. And, but he, we do here. It's called the church, right? I mean, we have such an attractive message for people uh, that, that it's, it's ridiculous if we can't help attract people and adorn the doctrine of the gospel, Okay. Uh, not only did he give me a community, he made me a part of his redemptive plan. The 9 o'clock service, I use the example of, uh, you ever played uh, football or uh, flag football or basketball, or whatever sports, soccer, kickball, uh, and you have like 20 people on the wall, and the team captains are up there, and they're picking, right? And you pick the really good people first, right? And your team's stacked, and there's always these two or three scrawny people, and, and they're like, well, I can either... Just tell them we don't need them. I can give them all to them because we were going to beat them anyway. Or I can be gracious and just bring them over here and you can be on my team. We'll kick you the ball for winning at the end of the game. Okay. Uh, God didn't do that to us. Right? We're all the wimpy scrawny kid that couldn't add anything to the to the game. And, and Christ bought us, purchased us, put us on the team and God didn't say, sit over there while I go save the world. Okay. And when I'm ready for you, towards the end of this, I'm going to call you up. Okay? You know, he said, listen, I'm making you an ambassador of Christ. I'm Making you a part of the plan of my redemptive historical plan for the world. Like, you're not just sitting on the sideline. God's called you to be a part of what He's doing, to see people saved. You may be the scrawny person who can't do any good for the team, but God's called you to do it anyway, and He's given you Himself and His Spirit to provide for you an avenue and an opportunity to be built up and encouraged so that you can be bold to go do those things. I mean, what kind of, you see, the attractive message is is plain to see. And at the end of the day, he's coming back to get me. I mean that nothing more attractive than that. this world's going down real quick, and I know that Christ is going to come get me It's going to make everything's going to be okay for me, but not for people who don't know Christ. You see how attractive this message is. We need to be propagating that message and thirdly, and point number two, you need to know how to answer each person in verse six, he says that you need to have a speech that is full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you can do something important, so that you can answer each person with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Peter 3.15 says, In your heart you need to honor Christ as Lord. Uh, you need to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That We have a, a job, and the job is to be able to respond to anyone and everyone specifically. Not just blanket gospel conversations. Always the same gospel in different contexts. I want to give you one more verse to go to as we close. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. The apostle Paul uh, gives some really great evidence of the way that he shares the gospel with people who are nothing like him. And Paul gives a really great example on how we ought to live the gospel and speak the gospel in a way that is caring, that is nurturing, that is also pointed and draws people to a response to the gospel, even when we're not like them. He says in that verse, starting in verse 19, though I'm free from all, that is, I'm I'm saved, Christ saved me, right, I'm not not bound to anything or anybody because Christ has saved me, I have made myself a servant to all. What a great testimony. Although I'm not bound to service to anyone, I'm making myself a servant to all for this purpose, that I might win more of them. That's Paul's goal. What I want to do, I'm going to make myself a servant of anyone and everyone so that I can win some of them to Christ. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. But he's not saying that I, you know, became religiously a Jew. But what he's saying is, I have made myself aware and understanding of all the things that the Jews are interacting with in their speech and in their lives. I have inserted myself into their lives in such a way where I can respond to them with the gospel in their own context. Okay? I'm not saying you have to overcontextualize the gospel to reach people, but I'm saying Paul said, I'm willing to go that far. I mean, some of us aren't willing to have a conversation with somebody who speaks English who grew up in the same town we've been in for 30 years. But Paul's willing to say, I'm, I'll change everything if I can just preach the gospel. He says, to those under the law, talking about uh, these Jews, right? To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though he's not under the law, he wants to win souls who are under the law. Verse 21, to those outside the law, to Gentiles, I become as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul's saying this, even to the Gentiles, I'm going I'm to go, I'm going to eat with them, I'm going I'm to get to know them, I'm going to know their culture, I'm going to know their context, and I'm going to be able to preach the gospel specifically to these people. And he says this, to the weak I become the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And that's Paul's, whole job and responsibility as it is ours. Verse 23, here's Paul's motive. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says, I'm going to go and do everything I can to reach people for Christ, that I may win them, and that I may share in the blessing. You, you, you want to know what sharing in the blessing of the gospel is like? It's when you look in this room in a couple of months, and the room is packed out, and you can, you can, you can remember saying, that's my waitress." At, uh, at Chili's, I invited her, and here she is. And then after that, you hear, oh, she's getting baptized in September. Why? Because you took the time to intentionally invite someone to church, which I have these little invite cards. We have a ton of these, a little commercial. Uh, we just got these in two days ago. Listen, if you have gospel conversations, and maybe you're not the most articulate human being in the universe... Okay, no one's asking you to be uh, the best speaker in the universe, but we're asking you to be faithful. God's asking you to be faithful. And so if you're one of those people that say, I think I messed that whole thing up, but uh, we have a pastor and a church that would love to talk to you about this, you should come see us Sunday at 9 or 11. That commercial's over. Okay, uh, But it's for us to be intentional because we want to share in the blessing of the gospel. And sharing the blessing of the gospel is not only seeing God's church here growing and and, and proving fruitful. It's as we sit in eternity and we're hanging out and we're worshiping God, we're like... Is that Joe over there? Oh, dude. I shared the gospel with him, and there he is. And he's palling around with 30 other people he led to Christ. Could you believe that? The blessing of the gospel is because of your faithfulness and fruitfulness of your own intentionality in the way that you live and you preach the gospel, you're going to provide a conduit of grace for people to enter into a relationship with God. Come on. I mean, this is how attractive is that that you and I get to be a part of that mission? Some of you are. Just angry and, and fed up with your job uh, and you still you give it 70 hours a week right? Uh, so many of us won't even give God 5 hours of our week when what he has promised for us is abundantly greater than any of those things and what I want to encourage you to do as you're a part of Compass Bible Church is let's get going all right? let's get moving and let's get out there and let's be sharing the gospel with people right? let's be living intentionally because we see lost people out there and we love lost people we want to see lost people saved And if you're in here and you're saved, we want to see saved people discipled. We want to see you, we want want to watch you growing in faith, walking in obedience to God, and that this church would be a fruitful lampstand in this community. And when people think of Compass Bible Church, they think of you. And they think of people who said, you know what? Those people speak and live graciously, extending the grace of God to people and sharing the truth of the message of the gospel of grace. Let us be that church and let you and me be those individuals. Let's pray. God, we come to you knowing that we truly are incapable of doing any good thing apart from you, and that is why it's so important that we trust and understand and believe, as we look at your word, that we don't do any of this apart from you, that your spirit indwells us in God, and it produces in us the faithfulness that we need, the boldness that we need to bring about the obedience of believers, to bring about the faithfulness in our own life, And to bring about uh, people responding to this good news of the gospel because we were bold enough and privileged enough to engage in these conversations. God, I pray that even even as we're finishing up here, as we, we end in worship, proclaiming your name, that we would even think back to the people and the person who proclaimed the gospel to us. The people who literally took time out of their life to Caruso the message to us that led us to respond through turning from our sins and trusting in you. And God, And let that be a motivating factor for us to see the need to preach the gospel, to see the need to live our lives intentionally for the gospel, for us to uh, speak so we can win people to you. And God, let us be a church that's marked by that, marked by just fervent faithfulness. God, give us the power through your spirit. God, encourage us through the fellowship of believers to do this great work. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.